Welcome to episode number 186 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast where we're building a global community around process safety, the industry's handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about the steps to investigate combustible dust fire or explosion. And we're doing that with very special guest, Brian Dunnigan, Managing Consultant and Chief Investigator at IFO Group. Brian, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast today. Hey, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to have Brian on. I'm excited to have IFO Group involved with the work we're doing at Dust Safety Professionals and to learn from, from their experience and from Brian's experience in combustible dust investigations. We're going to cover, you know, what is the first thing a company should do when they experience a loss, walk through the investigation process and the main steps. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about what role does technology play in investigations today that, that maybe we didn't have as options to us before. Some of the key points he's learned related to combustible dust. Brian is a certified fire and explosion investigator, certified fire investigator, or certified fire investigator instructor, rather. Uh, extensive background in process safety related to, to many industries, oil and gas, marine, paper, pulp, chemical, other combustible dust handling industries. Um, he's led and managed multiple extremely large loss process safety incidents, events involving you know major loss of life and limb, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in assets, loss and impairment, tense regulatory public scrutiny, uh, which keeps him as a, a pretty busy guy, which is why I do appreciate him coming on the podcast and sharing his experience and background with the the audience today. We did cover common challenges in incident investigation back in episode 172 with Kevin Cardwell. This is kind of a you know a follow on or a different take of this. We're looking at okay, what are the those are some of the challenges that were identified. Those are some of the personnel that might be involved. Some of the different viewpoints and groups. In this one, we're we're talking about okay, what are the steps to investigate this type of thing when it happens and focusing on the different experience that Brian brings to the table. So, Brian, can you explain a bit of your background and what role IFO plays in industry today? Sure. So, I actually started my career in the in the public safety realm. I worked my way through college in the fire service. So, I was a, a firefighter paramedic and a sworn fire marshal. So, I've actually been doing fire investigations for uh, about 30 years now. So, that's in a roundabout way how I got to where I am today. I worked in industry for a period of time. The last large corporate roles that I had, I was the global vice president for operational integrity for SGS. And before that, I was vice president of health, safety, security, and environment for Shell Oil Company in the Middle East and Africa. I've been with IFO Group now for eight years. So I manage our overall practice, but at the same time, I'm still pretty heavily engaged in our day-to-day operations both on the process safety management consulting side and then managing large inv- investigations. And you are located in Texas, is that right? Just outside Houston? That's correct. I'm based in Texas, but uh, my coworkers are, are based all over North America. Uh, we, we have people in a number of other different states. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I uh, appreciate you sharing your background. And, and like I said, Brian's really... 30 years experience in, you know, fire marshal, fire service, paramedic service to industry involvement, to investigating very large incidents brings a sort of wealth of experience to the podcast today. Let's kind of start at the start, I guess. When we're working in a company, it's a company that handles powders or combustible dust. What is the first thing a company should do if they experience a, a loss incident, a fire, an explosion type of facility? What are some things they should be doing to, to get things kicked off? Okay. Well, the first thing we, we advise, you know, any of our clients is to plan ahead and assume that eventually you may very well suffer an incident involving combustible dust. I think that's one of the key things 
that pre-planning really pays huge dividends if you, in fact, do have a loss or an incident. You're not, you know, frankly, Googling for someone to help you at three o'clock in the morning. You've already established those relationships beforehand. And, and integrating as part of your emergency response plan, I think, is, is a really good approach to making sure that you're prepared and you're ready uh, in the unlikely event, hopefully unlikely event that you have an incident. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it's, it's a great point. If you're listening to this and you've already had an incident, um, you can reach out to, to Brian, the team at IFO group, or depending on where you are in the, the world as well, uh, you go to dustatedprofessionals.com. But I would say planning ahead, and it's not not if you experience an incident, but, but when. If you use that thinking, then you can do things like you're saying, integrate it into your emergency response plan. How is the incident investigation going to follow? Have those contacts ready so that when that does happen, and generally, I don't know your experience. It probably doesn't. It generally doesn't seem to happen at like the best of times. <laughs> but when it does, it, it is a pretty stressful occasion. We'll call it. And having that pre work done is probably a great place to to get you off on the on the right foot. Well, that's absolutely the case. The, I'm actually in the field right now on a major investigation. It's a multi hundred million dollar loss, and this was a great example of us being contacted at middle of the night, three in the morning. This is a client we had not worked for in the past. And they were in crisis management at the time. Uh, they had uh, almost a dozen different regulatory and law enforcement agents, agencies looking over their shoulder and, uh, and starting their own active investigations into the loss. So the, even the incident I'm on right now is a great example of why that pre-planning uh, is so important. So that you know, you're, you're always going to have a lot of chaos and uncertainty once you've had an incident. But one of the things that can help control some of that chaos is having done that pre-planning. So we mentioned a couple of things, the, you know, the contacts of who to connect with, having an emergency response plan, then how does your incident investigation tie into that? Anything else in sort of this pre-planning stage that folks should be thinking about to make sure if we convince them now to do it and they haven't yet, what, what else should go into that? Well, certainly here, if you have an operation in the United States and you're uh, in operations or you're a, a safety professional responsible for this sort of planning, is making sure that you engage with the uh, with your company's internal counsel, the lawyers, uh, because this is invariably going to become a legal issue from start to finish. Whether that's dealing with the regulatory issues or it's dealing with you know the insurance companies involved, uh, that pre-planning needs to involve the attorneys internally, and they also need to identify the external counsel that they may end up using if there is actually an incident. So we've, we've convinced folks they should have a plan in place. They know who to have involved. They've, they've got their legal counsel understanding that it's not if, but when, and, and they've addressed that. Can you walk us through the investigation process then? What are some of the main steps that would be considered? Well, one of the big things that has to be determined quite early on is uh, who's going to be the lead on the investigation. We go to some places where, and this is actually fairly typical, the local authorities who may generally investigate these kind of incidents don't have the experience or the expertise to do these types of investigations. We did one in Arizona, for example, a dust explosion and the local, uh, the local fire marshal and even the state fire marshal had very, very limited experience with uh, dust explosions and fires. So in that case, we actually worked with those agencies to help our client you know, reach a, a final conclusion with the investigation. So that's probably one of the, the stickiest things that we encounter is all of the different 
fire investigation agencies that are involved that, that have a responsibility to do these investigations as well. And then the other regulatory agencies like here in the US with OSHA uh, or in the UK, it's the HSE. So it just depends on you know, how things start unfolding, you know, who's gonna be the lead on the investigation, who's gonna provide support, and who's gonna, in, in all likelihood, probably take a very hands-off approach in some cases. That makes sense. So we have that sort of as the first step then, who is the lead there and establishing whether they have the, the full expertise of understanding the process, the operations, and and the hazards themselves. Um, you kind of need at least those three pieces and probably more to, to make heads or tails, especially of an extremely large loss incident. What's the next step in the process? Well, it's securing the scene. And this is a key item, you know, making sure that evidence isn't lost or destroyed either purposely or uh, inadvertently. And that's another key function of having done that pre-planning is knowing that you're going to have to secure the site and preserve it until the investigation is ready to get started. And then making sure that all the parties that are going to be involved in the investigation are ready to proceed before you start doing things like moving evidence or even collecting evidence. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we have establishing who the lead is, securing the scene. What is the next step? Well, it's frequently... You know, there's a lot of times that there's actually an ongoing emergency. Certainly when we arrive, uh, it's not unusual for us to still have a fire, for example, when we arrive, given that we usually arrive quite quickly after the the incident has started to unfold. It's not unusual for us to have to coordinate our activities with the local fire departments, uh, because in many cases, in in many situations, there's still an ongoing emergency. So while it's quite important to get started with the investigation, you have to understand and recognize that it, it can't interfere with the emergency response that may or may not still be going on. But it's, a, it's highly important that you get there as quickly as possible because frequently evidence is going to be destroyed or lost the longer you wait, uh, especially in any place that's out in the open and exposed to the weather. For example, I had an explosion a couple of years ago and the entire area where the explosion occurred uh, ended up with almost three feet of snow on top of it due to a storm. So if we had been able to get there even a day earlier, we could have done some photography and some other activities instead of waiting for uh, a couple of weeks for all that snow to melt off. Yeah, and I think that's a great point to tie into this first thing, who is the lead? So we, we said, you know, do they have the process operations and in hazard experience, but do they have experience in incident investigation? Because that's the only way to really to get that, you know, you only have that happen where you get snow covered, lay out so many times before you clue in that we need to get there before quicker and before that happens. So even, you know, if they were, a, say, a, a person that does dust hazard analysis and has the background understanding of the equipment and, and the, the barriers and controls that are in place, doesn't necessarily mean that they have the expertise in incident investigation, the kind of things that can come up there. And I'm sure you're going to talk about this again, but just even managing all the different people that are involved, regulatory agencies, legal agencies, lawyers, fire departments, uh, are all doing their own investigation with their own desired outcome, like desired reason for doing the insurance are, are all going to be doing it for different reasons. Um, and I think one of the key things is to make sure that you learn how to prevent that from happening again, which is the probably the main reason that the, the company is going to be looking at it in, in addition to the, the legal and you know, other, other areas there. So you talked about this being an ongoing hazard. You mentioned crisis management already. Is that, is that kind of what you meant by crisis management? Like things that are still on fire? Or is there other aspects that go into to crisis management, you know, right when a, an incident happens? It is. And, you know, it, dep- it depends on how you define a crisis. So 
you know, depending on where an incident occurs, it, they tend to be quite newsworthy events, right? So you'll be, you'll be having to deal with the news media, which it could be print reporters, it could be you know, the TV folks. So if the incident happens near a major market area and there's a slow news day, you're, you're going to see a lot of news media. And so dealing with that part of the crisis, that's a, that's, that's a fairly unique skill set to deal with the news media. And then having pre-planned all that, again, knowing who you're going to call to help manage those relationships during the crisis. And then it's even as simple as, you know, well, as complex as determining, you know, if your facility is heavily destroyed, who do you need to notify that you're going to incur your force majeure clauses in your contracts? Because you may not be able to produce product for a period of time. And that for a lot of companies, that's a massive crisis. Uh, their customers are expecting deliveries as requested and as agreed, and you may or may not be able to fulfill those contractual obligations due to the emergency at your facility. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm sure that's, well, the truth is that they're all happening at the same time. So you can have, you know, injured folks, you can have damaged facility, you can have, you know, structural elements that are on close to failure, the, the impact of the public in a, a negative manner, trying to figure out where their loved ones are, you have news media there. And you actually have just profitability of the, again, that's not really the right term, but the, the company itself. I think that actually is a good term because especially if it's a smaller organization and you only have one or two facilities and you have a facility that's completely out of service for potentially for months uh, or potentially forever, that has profound impacts on, on most companies and being able to service their customers. And that includes loss of market share because customers are going to go immediately start looking for an alternative. So you, you could definitely have a situation where depending on how the investigation proceeds and how fast it goes, you could have a company that actually goes bankrupt because of one of these incidents. Yeah. And it could be the difference between maintaining a, ba- a base level, you know, running capability versus laying off hundreds of employees just on the, the timing of how this comes out and, and what, what happens at the end of the day, um, which then has an impact on the community, has an impact on the, the individuals involved. So it's, it's multi, multifaceted. It's like a Venn diagram with a whole bunch of circles. <laughs> I'm sure that's where, when you come into it, then that's where your head's going is trying to figure out, okay, well, step one, step two, step three, what are all the different interaction points between those steps? I said the next step would typically for us be a, it's, it's a fairly fast process and early in the investigation is just documenting the scene. And that's where, you know, technology has come a long way just in even the last five or six years for us, certainly. As an example, we use drones quite extensively on these incidents now. We use LIDAR scanning. And there's just, you know, a lot of, before, a lot of our evidence that we collected, uh, especially uh, documents, that's where they would actually be physical documents, where now that has moved on and it's not uncommon at all for us to be uh, virtually all digital workplace and then having to recover those key pieces of evidence that are digital. So that's also where crisis management and planning comes in is, for example, the scene where we're working right now, this client was storing all of their data on site. And unfortunately, that building burned down as part of the fire. So they're they're very much struggling to uh, reproduce or even uh, recover any documents from a building that has been gutted by the fire. Yeah, and that come into that pre-planning too about where it's it's very hard to have off-site paper doc, backups. It's not really hard to have off-site digital backups depending on the 
security requirements of your company, but you know, having that forethought to think, okay, well, it's it's pretty similar with explosion prevention and protection in general. You have can have a case where one of those systems, those critical systems, get knocked out during an incident. Then you need to really think about, okay, well, what if that happens? How's that going to impact the emergency response if the lights are out or the emergency alarms are off or the floors buckle or there's holes? That same idea and thought process and go with the data as well. Okay, if there's a fire in the the building that contains all our, our paper documents, which hopefully is less might be less common today. But if, if it's all the digital documents, then are those backed up? Or how do we access those? How does that go into our, our response plan? Absolutely. That's what happened to this particular company is they had not been backing up their documents off-site. They felt that, you know, it was, they were doing backups. The problem is they were storing their backups in the same building as their primary servers. Yeah, that's a classic issue that happens sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, I wish it were more uncommon, but it's probably more common than not. That's our experience is folks don't make that leap when they do their pre-planning that, hey, my my primary administration building is going to burn down as part of the, the initial incident. And that's probably happened. Uh, I think we've had half a dozen incidents like that in the last two years where our clients lost all of their data because they were storing it on site. Okay, so we have the document documenting the scene, which contains a couple of elements of you know technology and, and digitization. What's the next step after that? Sure, we even going back to that. You know, where before we would use primarily photography and videography to document the scene. The reason that's so important for us is it allows us as investigators to go back and, and look at the scene repeatedly. Uh, because one of our first priorities is to complete the investigation activities on the scene as quickly as possible so that we can release the scene back to the owners so that they can hopefully get back into their normal operations as quickly as possible. So what that looks like typically is being able to release the scene back to them so they can start some demolition and even start some reconstruction or repairs so they can get back into operations as quickly as possible and then reduce as much as possible that business interruption loss that these companies suffer. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. What's the next part after that? Uh, as part of that, you know, again, we used to do primarily videography and photography, but now on almost all of these big losses, we use LIDAR scanning as well. And the advantage to doing this is it allows us to actually build a 3D computer model of the scene. Uh, and we can actually use virtual reality headsets and handsets and actually physically walk back through the scene over and over again, even years in the future uh, after the incident, we can go back to the scene repeatedly and visit the scene of a fire and explosion. Many times after the scene, the initial scene is just gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So it's a huge advantage to us. It's, uh, it's probably one of the biggest changes that we've seen in just how we do our investigations and certainly the last 30 years. When I got started, it was, we were still using film cameras and every once in a while we would use a video, you know, a video camera on our scenes. So it's the technology has certainly progressed very quickly over the last 10 years and it's continuing to progress rather rapidly. Well, on that, I, I, there's probably another element of this where I was just picturing you with the, the video camera and the, you know, the flash photography or maybe, maybe it wasn't flash or whatever it was, but there's, there's probably a lot of uh, external information come in too, right? security cameras from adjacent companies, social media. Does that come into play in these sort of new technology-based investigations as well? Absolutely. And, you know, using this this current investigation we're working on right now, this was this fire occurred next to a major highway. 
And so we've actually been able to recover a lot of valuable video from social media posts where people just driving by on, on the highway stopped and took video and still photographs of the fire during the initial phases of the incident. And unfortunately for this facility, their security, they had a number of security cameras, but unfortunately they were all being uh, stored in the building that burned down. So we're conducting our investigation without the benefit of the, of the site's uh, security video. But uh, fortunately for us, we're able to recover a lot of uh, very useful information from social media and then from other bystanders that have come forward and produced the video or, or photographs that they took of the, the incident in the first opening minutes. So that's been invaluable to us, and that's a typical process flow for us during the investigation is searching social media for things like that and potential witnesses. That's another thing that we tend to, to look through social media for is people that we might want to talk to that otherwise we wouldn't be able to identify those people as potential witnesses. Yeah, I'm sure that we've we've had this on the podcast for talking about some of the some of the ways you may prove or disprove different hypotheses and, and establishing a timeline of the event is, from my understanding, you know, a really important aspect and, and things like, you know, smoke plume size, fire size, fire color, smoke plume color, building collapse. Those are all things that can be established from a timeline from internal cameras if you have them. And in the case where the, they're gone, then, you know, social media, but I think the Porta Bay route was the a large explosion that we had covered on the podcast um, probably a year ago now where they talked about all the data that is available through social media with something that's such a large um, impactful incident and then using that to try to construct, okay, what is the timeline and what's that point to for bad actors? What is that point to for incident scenario and escalation mechanisms? Uh, what kind of effects happened first, second, third and establishing you know what the process was? Absolutely. And that's a key investigation activity is building a detailed timeline because it helps us understand fire growth, it helps us stage fire growth, and it also helps us determine if, for example, if fire suppression systems were in operation during the fire, because that'll typically be one of those things that becomes a point of contention. You know, did the sprinkler system go off? Uh, was it flowing water? And was it effective? So unfortunately, we've had a number of fires where perhaps the, the fire sprinkler system, for example, is undersized, and it, uh, the fire was able to overwhelm uh, the sprinkler system and then proceed to destroy the facility. So that's, a, that's definitely a key reason for looking for that kind of information from the public and even from other employees. You know, we look at one of the things that we do do is we, we, when we interview employees and other witnesses is ask them, uh, everybody's got a phone with a camera in their pocket where that certainly wasn't the case 15 years ago. It was actually fairly rare for someone to have a phone with a camera, but now everyone's got a camera with them at all times. So it's really, in many respects, changed how we do some of these investigations. We do rely quite heavily on photography and videos taken by other witnesses. I can imagine that affects team size, right? It's probably no, no longer the case that you just have one lead, and, and maybe it is, I don't know, you tell me, one lead investigator that goes in compiles the 5,000 pictures and the 3,000 documents, interviews the the couple dozen witnesses and sort of makes sense of it all. Like, does it take a whole team approach now to be able to, to tackle that? It does. And, and since we do primarily large events, you know, our investigation team size is probably a little larger than, than, than that used by some other folks, just because most of the fires that we do are large loss events and or, you know, incidents that have injured or unfortunately killed people. 
during the course of the incident. So on the small end, we probably have five or six investigators on a site and they can grow as large as you know 20 people depending on what the circumstances are. So for example, if we have concerns about the structural stability of the structures, we have several forensic structural engineers uh, on our investigation team. We've got process engineers, we've got mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. We have just about every needed discipline you can probably imagine that we can bring to bear during one of these investigations. And since these large investigations tend to generate a uh, very large volume, especially of electronic evidence now, we have dedicated evidence custodians uh, and evidence technicians on these investigations to make sure that you know, we can keep track of all that evidence as it flows in. Uh, we've got positive chain of custody on all those pieces of evidence as they come in. And it's, uh, it's even more critical when we start actually collecting physical evidence. So, you know, physical evidence can be as, you know, small as a tiny spring to, you know, large piping or duct sections, for example, or large motors. And I think we kind of, we spent quite a bit of time in this sort of documenting the scene that sort of fits under there as well custodians of the evidence, uh, document chain, chain of custody, that sort of thing. We talked a bit about the analysis side. So what do you do, I guess, is what I'm trying to get to. So we have all the, the information about, you know, a detailed timeline, but what, how, what else goes in the analysis of this? Well, at the end of the day, we're doing a fire cause and origin investigation. So we need to determine where the fire start? What's the origin of the fire or explosion? What was the ignition source? You know, identifying the oxidizer involved, which is typically atmospheric, you know, oxygen from atmospheric air, but uh, in some industrial operations, it could actually be, you know, oxygen. So that part of the investigation really has never changed. We still have to do uh, a cause and origin investigation and determine, you know, where the fire explosion start, what sparked it, and, uh, and then go from there as far as determining what actually caused the fire. Uh, so it's usually not just a single thing. It's usually a, a number of events occurring in tandem that allow one of these big events to get going. Yeah, that makes sense. So we have sort of the fire cause and origin investigation, looking at where it happened, um, the timeline involved, ignition sources, oxidizers, fuels, understanding the, the cause and or causes that, that led to the outcomes that we're seeing. Any other sort of parts in the process that we're missing? What comes after that? Well, a lot of times we'll have objects that have to go to the lab. So... You know, if it's a dust explosion, we uh, we look, for example, one of the first things we look at is their DHA. You know, what is that? What sort of information can we glean from their DHA if they've done one? I'm still somewhat shocked at just how frequently we find folks that are handling combustible dust that have not completed a DHA. Or if they have one, it's quite outdated. So that's one of those first things that we look at during a dust explosion is or a fire is looking at their DHA. And did the controls that they expected to prevent one of these incidents fail, or was it even there at all? So, you know, there's a lot of moving parts there as far as that aspect of the investigation. But we'll frequently try to recover dust samples to send to the lab, because one of the things that may have happened is from the time that they previously did dust testing, or they did sent their, their samples off previously, either the dust was not representative of what they were actually handling, or they've actually changed their processes to the point where uh, their initial dust testing is no longer val a value that they have changed their process to the point where 
they have a changed profile for for what they're actually handling and it doesn't reflect reality. And that's a, I mean, that's a really great point because that's something we, you know, it's kind of a question they hear quite a bit in terms of can we use historical data? Can we use literature data for our, our explosion parameters? And it always comes back to, is it representative? And I just, I want to kind of hide that point, point on it. So have, have you seen it be the case, say routinely, or is it, is it something that happens, you know, with any degree of frequency where they've done their testing or they've used literature data and just hasn't been representative or there's a change in the process. And like you kind of said it happens, I don't put words in your mouth, but you said it happens frequently enough to be brought up. I just want to reiterate that. Is that something you do see quite a bit? We do. We did a, a dust fire and explosion a few months ago where that client had actually sent their dust to be, to be tested. And the size of the, the dust particles was quite large that they sent. And it didn't actually reflect the dust that they were actively handling on that site in their ductwork. And lo and behold, they had a, uh, unfortunately, they had a dust explosion and fire involving that finer dust. But if you look at their DHA and their, their other lab results that they had in hand, you would believe that that dust was only marginally combustible. And when in fact it was actually, you know, it was actually quite combustible, especially the smaller particle sizes that they were actually in reality handling in probably 90% of their process. I think we're going to kind of close out the episode talking about some of these key takeaways or points or findings from combustible dust investigations. But before we, before we close on that, these are two really good ones about doing a DHA and making sure your sampling is representative. Any, any other steps you kind of want to summarize on this uh, investigation process? Anything that we're missing so far? Probably one of the first things to do is, especially before the investigators arrive, is, you know, identify people that are potential witnesses, ask them not to speak to each other. That's one of the, probably the biggest problems that we find is, is once potential witnesses start talking amongst themselves and say we have 10 witnesses, we'll end up with a single story because it's not intentional. It's, it's just human behavior. They'll start talking amongst themselves about the incident. And before long, instead of 10 perspectives on the incident, we've got one. So, you know, asking people to, to not talk to others about the incident until after they're interviewed, asking them to preserve, you know, documents and preserve any video or photos that they've already taken is a key thing. And then, you know, obviously one of the, the first things you gotta do is handle the emergency and take care of any injured parties that you may have, that's absolutely the priority. And it has to take priority, you know, the investigation. But once that emergency response piece is complete, then we really got to uh, start making progress on the investigation before, you know, valuable evidence is destroyed or lo- and lost forever. Uh, when I was a firefighter, I used to be uh, quite enthusiastic about being a firefighter. And, and I probably destroyed quite a bit of evidence for the, for the fire investigators because of my, uh, my overzealous interest in putting as much water as possible into a building that's on fire. And after I was a fire marshal, we referred to those guys as the evidence eradication team. So that, that's always an issue is making sure that you're doing, you know, all you can to help preserve any potential evidence until the investigators can arrive on scene and get started with their work. Makes a lot of sense to me. Put the put the wet stuff on the red stuff <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah, um, uh, I used to be really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, we appreciate your passion because I know it's something that sustained you through to fire marshal and something that sustained you through to what you do today. 
Anything else uh, before we kind of move to any of the lessons learned or takeaways from the investigations you've done? No, other than, again, you know, one of the key things is doing that pre-planning, you know, starting with the assumption that you are probably going to have, you know, despite all your efforts, you may still have some sort of combustible dust, fire or explosion, and, you know, making sure that you've got that plan in place and it's ready to go in the event that hopefully that you don't have one, but if you do, you're ready to go. I want to get, try to get as much experience from you on the combustible dust challenges that might come up. So we talked about a couple already, um, having your DHA completed, having it up to date. So that's going to really go be put to the test in a circumstance like this. Things like evaluating, did the controls work as designed? Were the controls sufficient? And these are all going to come out in the post-investigation. They're going to come out from you know regulatory requirements. They're going to come out in a lot of different ways. Having that document is really important. And then the testing, the sampling, having sampling plans representative of the materials you're creating, understanding how that might need to be integrated with your management change program if you're changing flow velocities or feedstock so that when something does happen, you know, the, you're, you're prepared for it. Any other kind of lessons learned or key takeaways or points from the work that you've done with combustible dust? Well, that's, uh, that's a great point too about the, you know, your process changes. You need to update your DHA. Uh, don't wait five years for the next revision. If your supplier has changed, for example, you know, it, dust testing at the end of the day is, is not expensive, especially in comparison to uh, the potential consequences of the dust fire or an explosion. You know, if you change suppliers and your feedstock looks different, if you've not assured yourself that you're essentially dealing with apples to apples as a comparison, then by all means, collect another sample and send it off for dust testing. And then if your results come back, you know, uh, appreciably different from the original dust that was used in your DHA, then you need to update your DHA. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that might be a, a, an hour or 10 minutes or one minute of lost time. <laughs> if the process goes down, that would have cost. Absolutely. It's cheap insurance. It's absolutely cheap insurance. Anything else? Making sure your employees know what to do during the emergency is another issue that, that we have seen repeatedly, especially the, the organizations that have said, you know, we're not going to have incidents. And so to make that a self-fulfilling prophecy, they don't really actually train for emergencies uh, sufficiently. So making sure that all these employees that work in these areas are aware of the hazards and and what how what they're doing can be quite hazardous. For example, again, we do a lot of audits. We do a lot of preventative work on combustible dust. We write DHAs, we do audits, uh, all those other kinds of activities in addition to our investigation practice. As an example of that, we were in a facility that handles combustible dust, and we happened to walk by uh, an MCC, a motor control center, and the door was wide open and there was dust billowing out of the open door. And it was because one of the employees was in there with compressed air and using it to clean uh, all the motor control uh, switches and uh, breakers and all the electrical equipment with compressed air. And you could not see from one end of that MCC to the other because of all the suspended dust in the air. And so when we, we intervened in that particular situation and asked them to stop using that compressed air to remove dust, they had not really recognized that uh, cleaning that area with compressed dust was a huge risk. It's not a classified area. There's open electrical contacts all through that MCC. 
And they had done it on a number of occasions uh, and not had an explosion or a fire, which was extraordinarily lucky uh, given how much stuff that they had managed to suspend in the air. Yeah. And again, it's really a question, not if, but when, if you have all sides of the, the explosion, Pentagon and the flash fire square there. And I'll just re- we've seen, you know, I, I don't know the top number, but dozens of cases of that being the specific circumstances under which an employee has, has been impacted by a flash fire or, or an explosion. Generally, it's going to be a flash fire if they're in the room, depending on how big the cloud is. But that that's why it's so forcefully stated in the NFPA standards is that that's blowdown is the exact cause of some um, percentage and, and that percentage is, is large of the, the kind of root cause, if you will. And I hesitate to say that given your experience in the field, <laughs> but a, a cause, a circumstance under which these type of incidents can happen. So it's really good to identify that. And the problem is probably going to be the person going to come back and say, well, you know, I've done this a dozen times and it never had an issue. And No, absolutely. And it's, it's somewhat shocking just how often we still see that sort of activity. And in this particular facility, they were actually taking combustible dust quite seriously. But, uh, you know, explaining to even the lowest level of the employees, and this gentleman actually worked for maintenance, but it was a very entry-level employee. He'd actually only been there a few months. And they had never really explained combustible dust risk to this particular individual. And he just thought that he was doing a good job of keeping those areas clean by using compressed air and did, really did not have a good understanding at all of the risk that he was assuming by using compressed air to clean that equipment. And his supervisors had just sent him over there to go clean it. They thought he was going to just wipe things down and use a broom uh, and did not realize he was actually using compressed air to do that job. But they had been previously quite impressed with how clean he was getting these MCCs. They just didn't ask how exactly he got there. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's no fault of his own. He's he's probably doing a lot of great, like he's innovating. He's coming up with new ideas. And like those are the desirable qualities of an employee. It's up to the employer to to train them enough to know which those can be hazardous. And I think of a case, no, it drives on, but I think of a case of, oh, I don't know what they were they were puncturing, but Basically, they had a lot of gas cylinders and you couldn't ignite these cylinders, so you puncture them to let the gas out. They also had a lot of propane barbecues um, on site. So somebody said, go clean up the propane barbecue tanks, and the employee grabs the tank. And it's hard to puncture a propane barbecue tank. So he tried, and he innovated and come up with a new solution. And fortunately, it didn't ignite when he released the propane gas and nobody was injured. But holy smokes, that's a pretty bad near miss. And and the the guy in this case was you know trying his best, innovating, coming up with new ideas to figure out how to make get into this propane tank, not realizing that that's not the, the safe way to do it because the training was lacking. Absolutely. And, and probably the, the final observation I've got is uh, making sure that employers are doing a good job on their PPE selection. Obviously, as a safety professional, I look at PPE as the last line of defense. But, you know, for example, we had a fire explosion back in February involving combustible dust. And the employee involved in that accident was very severely burned. Uh, over 80% of his body. And the reason he was burned so severely is the employer did not require uh, flame retardant clothing on that work site, despite the fact that they had very obvious combustible dust risks throughout the site. Uh, the employees were allowed to wear essentially anything that they liked, including short sleeve t-shirts. And that's, that's how that employee ended up getting so severely burned. He was caught in a flash fire that ignited his clothing and he ultimately ended up burned over 80% of his body as a result. When, you know, we've also seen the, the alternative when 
employees are also caught in similar fires and they're wearing flame retardant clothing, they walk away from those incidents with relatively minor burns. So the difference between outcomes is quite stark. Uh, if you're caught in a flash fire uh, or a similar incident, you know, having the right PPE on uh, will save your life and certainly save you from uh, a potentially lifelong disabling injury. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And so there's, there's no PPE, there's, there's PPE and there's also the other side, like if you're cleaning with a, I don't want to name it, probably like a rubberized melting suit, we'll say it can actually exacerbate where those hot particles are now stuck to your, your skin and, and the, the materials. So there's actually things that you can wear that are even unsafe in those conditions than, than being fully exposed. Um, so it makes a difference is my, my point at the end of the day. So if you're in these type of environments, it's a great point, PPE and what should we be looking at there? And that all circles back to a, a, a good and effective DHA as well. It should be evaluating those type of hazardous personnel and, and making recommendations on, on what, uh, what kind of PPE is needed. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a gap that we see in many DHAs that are otherwise good DHAs, but they don't address that human factor uh, as part of the DHA effectively and identifying, hey, these are areas where people need to wear a certain level of minimal P, minimum PPE to make sure that in the event there is a flash fire or an explosion that they're not severely injured. Really interesting discussion, Brian. I appreciate coming on and walking us through the investigation process, what to do first, what to do before you do what to do first, what the pre-planning looks like, some of these key takeaways. Um, any any kind of last words for the audience, anything they should consider when hiring a fire and explosion um, investigation professional? Uh, you know, ask about experience. It's also helpful to have uh, your fire investigator be certified. Eventually, a lot of these, certainly in the United States, many of these cases, uh, ultimately end up resulting in litigation. And so you may very well be called to testify. And so your credentials will certainly be heavily scrutinized. Uh, so meeting the NFPA minimum requirements for a professional fire investigator is, you know, from my point of view, quite important and, and gives you that credibility to be able to stand by your investigation once you've been called to actually do one. And then just experience, uh, you know, I'm not sure you would want to hire a fire investigator to do uh, one of these dust explosionary fires if they've never done a dust fire explosion before. Certainly when uh, we have new investigators, they work uh, with our more experienced investigators for a long period of time before we turn them loose to go uh, manage an investigation on their own. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's some good takeaways to be thinking about. Um, obviously, IFO group uh, and Brian and their work is, is extremely well versed in this area across multiple industries. They have the certifications and the team if they need to go up to 20 people to manage the project then you know, they can kind of do that thing. So I do want to say thank you for coming on, Brian. Thank you for the work that um, IFO group is doing out there ar around the world. Uh, we, we do really appreciate it and look forward to the chance of getting you or your, your team back on the podcast in the future. Oh, thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure to be here today. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Have a good day. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Brian Dunnigan, Managing Consultant and Chief Investigator at IFO Group. We talked about the steps to investigate in a combustible dust fire explosion. We talked about what to do first, or we'll call it step zero, the things to do before, and that includes planning ahead, developing your emergency response plan, integrating that with your incident investigation plan from the outset, preparing with lawyers, preparing with legal teams, insurance companies in mind, how are you going to go about securing the site, maybe even training your employees on, you know, witness statements and that so that they're not contaminating their own witness statements by talking to each other before the process. 
unfolds, just having that all that ready so that when you do have that call at three o'clock in the morning and media is on site already and you know, you're dealing with, with loss and several different levels and, and impact and, and you're ready at the end of the day. So that's step zero. And we talked through in length, this inflation process. So who's going to lead securing the scene crisis management and addressing ongoing fire and explosion hazards and risks, and also crisis management on the different sides of media insurance closure of the, the facility force majeure on, on supply chain considerations talk about documenting the scene and what kind of analysis is done. We talked quite a bit about how this has changed over time, how new technology has made some options uh, much more viable here, but also really increase the amount of just raw data that can be collected for good or bad. And it's mostly good, I'm sure, but for the analyst that's doing this, it probably is, is a, a lot of information. So it takes a really skilled team to be able to figure that out. So those are some of the major steps we talked through and, and brought up in this you know, interview. We close out talking about some additional things to consider, takeaways from combustible dust investigations as Brian and his team has been involved with, having an up-to-date dust hazard analysis, you know, updating when you have management change, make sure your sampling plan is representative of the hazards that are at your facility. That way you can circle back and say, okay, where are controls in place? Were they effective? What were we missing? And that's going to come out to play in any litigation as well. And even just determining why the incident happened, how to prevent that in the future. Uh, we talked about emergency response plan, training of employees, PP as being some other key takeaways from this type of, uh, you know, the investigation that Brian's been part of. And just closing out on if you are hiring a fire explosion investigation professional, they should have experience. The way you get experience is by being involved in these type of investigations as a member of the team, maybe as a mentor, mentee relationship, whatever it is to have that training to come up. Then the day when he's on, when they're on your site, I mean, investigating your incidents, it's probably good that they have that experience and certification. Things certainly help when you move on to litigation and having those credentials being questioned by, by others as you move down that path. So I want to say thank you as always for listening to the Safety Science Podcast. I appreciate the work that Brian and his team does. If you do want to connect with them, we'll have a way to do that in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 186 for this episode. I mean, also find them at Dust Safety Professionals as well. Uh, have a great week ahead and I appreciate everything you're doing. Industries handling combustible dust. Make them safer with the work that you do every day. Thank you.